0: Hey, everybody. This is Troy, one of the pastors at First Church of the Nazarene. Thank you for listening to the podcast. It is a glimpse into the life of our church. We are ordinary people being transformed into passionate followers of Jesus, and we are committed to join God in the remaking of all things. I pray that this sermon is a blessing and helps you join God today. If we can serve you in any way, we would love to Please get a hold of us at org. Have a great day. I want to start off by talking to you about um, a book that I read that was really eye-opening to me. The book is called Tribe, and it was written by the journalist Sebastian Younger. And in, in this book, this, the, uh, Sebastian Younger tells the story of of this odd thing that happened in early American history. Early American history. So in the 18th century, up and down the eastern seaboard, two groups of people, two distinct groups of people, lived side by side with each other. Indigenous people and colonists. And here's the phenomenon. What people began to notice happening was that colonists began to defect and to leave their European civilizations and go live with the indigenous people in their civilization. So there there was this movement from European to indigenous, but here's here's the weird thing. It didn't happen the other way. As far as we can tell, there's no historical record of even one indigenous person choosing to leave behind their civilization and go and join the European colonists. Now, this was noticed by a guy you might know, Benjamin Franklin, not just a plumber. Not just a plumber. Benjamin Franklin, he noticed this, and he wrote a letter in 1753, and he said of the colonists who were captured in a raid and then later saved, he said this, and I have this quote for you the ransomed by their friends and treated with all imaginable tenderness to prevail with them to stay among the English, yet in a short time they become disgusted with our manner of life and they take the first good opportunity to escape into the woods. And then the quote continues, these, aren't, these words aren't on the screen. He continues, Thousands of Europeans and Indians, or thousands of Europeans are or have become Indians, and we have no examples of even one of those Aborigines of their choice becoming European. And this was his analysis. Pay close attention to this. Benjamin Franklin says there must be something in their social bond, something singularly captivating and far superior to anything boasted among us. In other words, what he was saying is, there's got to be something happening in the bond between these people that isn't happening among us, and it's better. So Younger makes the point that from the very beginning, there was something broken, something wrong about The way of life we have known in America. And his analysis leads him to this. We value the individual more than we value the group. We value the singular more than we value the plural. The person is more important than the community. Now... For hundreds of years now, that's been our way of life. And it's not just our way of life here in America. It's really the Western world's way of living. And the results of that way of life, that we, the seeds that we've sown for a couple of hundred years now, we're just beginning to reap. And sometimes it's, the story's not so great. In fact, just last year, Theresa May appointed a, a loneliness minister in the UK after a survey in their country revealed that over 30% of the population identified on that survey as lonely. And she made a statement to the press, and she said this, for far too many people in our country, loneliness is the sad reality of life. And it's not just a UK problem. In the US... Loneliness rates have doubled since the 80s. In fact, right now we're at 42.5%. 42.5% of people in our country report that they're chronically lonely. In 1984, the average American had three people they could confide in, three confidants. A recent report says that now, today, the average American has zero. Zero. In a famous interview our former servant, surgeon general wrote in the Harvard Business Review, quote, during my years caring for patients the most common pathology or the most common illness I saw was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. And George Gallup of the Gallup Poll fame said that quote, Americans are the loneliest people in the world. And this is what we're learning. This is what we're learning. Loneliness isn't just something that's like, Dear Diary, I'm lonely. I feel sad. There's health problems associated with it. Researchers say that chronic loneliness is like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It has a greater impact on lifespan than obesity. It's linked to anxiety and depression. And here's what we've learned. Our way of life in our country where we value the individual more than we value the group, it leads to loneliness. So here's the question, and the question is is this for all of us. Is there a practice? Is there something in the life and the teaching of Jesus that has the potential to set us up to thrive in the midst of the world that we live in? We understand this. We cannot change the current of the Western world and it will lead to more and more and more and more loneliness. It's the world that we live in. But is there something in the way of Jesus, some part of the life and the teaching of Jesus that can create people who thrive in the midst of that world? And the answer to that question is yes. That was rhetorical. The answer is yes. And I I want to get back to that in just a minute. But I want to jump to something else. John chapter 3, verse 16 makes, makes the mission and purpose of Jesus so very clear. And it's the one, if you know nothing about the Bible, which is fine, and that's wonderful. If you're here this morning and you've never cracked open the Bible, I'm so glad you're here and I hope you always feel welcome. And the truth is you're sitting next to people who probably haven't cracked open their Bible either. So welcome. We're so glad that you're here. But John chapter 3, verse 16 makes one point abundantly clear. And if you don't know the verse, the verse is this, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that everyone who believed in him would not perish but would have eternal life. It spells out the mission of Jesus. And the mission of Jesus was this, to save the world, to rescue the whole world. And I think we understand that that's what Jesus came to do. He came to save you, he came to save me, he came to save the whole world. But sometimes I think we overlook this, how did he do it? How did he do it? Did he go about saving the world all by himself? Was he born, grew up a little bit, and then immediately made his way to the cross where he was crucified and absorbed all of the sin and evil of the world and raised to new life? Is that what happened? No. The way that Jesus went about saving the world is by creating a community. By creating a group of people who were singularly oriented around the mission, John, or Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. I want to read a couple passages of scripture for you. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. It says this. As Jesus walked along the Galilee Sea, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, throwing fishing nets into the sea because they were fishermen. And Jesus says to them, come, follow me, and I'll show you how to fish for people. And Right away, they left their nets and followed him. And continuing on, he saw another set of brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, repairing their nets. And Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, I, I never preach a three-point sermon, but I'm preaching a three-point sermon today. So all of you note-takers and linear sorts of learners, this is your day. The first point is this. To follow Jesus means necessitates to be in community. To follow Jesus means, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. To be a follower of Jesus means you don't do it by yourself. You are in A community. If Jesus wanted to save the world all on his lonesome, do we believe that Jesus had the power to do that all by himself? Absolutely, he's God. He's the one through whom all things were made and all things created. Jesus was there from the very beginning. He's not some lesser version of a deity. He's this beautiful, mystical uh, unification of everything divine and everything human He could have saved the world all by himself, but he didn't. The first thing that he did in his public ministry is he went to where people were, and he invited people into this new community, and he gathered people around himself. He formed a group. He formed a group. He didn't have to do that. He could have saved the whole world all by himself, but he wanted to teach us something. That to be a follower of Jesus, in fact, to be truly human, is to live to work in the midst of a community. Jesus didn't call one disciple. He called disciples, plural. The first thing we have to understand about what it means to follow Jesus is just simply this. You can't do it by yourself. You were never intended to do it by yourself. You were always designed and always made to follow Jesus with someone else. There was always designed to be one another with you. It wasn't just you and Jesus. It wasn't Jesus and me. And while it's true you have a personal relationship with Jesus, you don't have an individual relationship with Jesus. None of us do. We all are in this together, and we all are following Jesus together, and that's the beauty of how Jesus set it up from the very beginning. The first thing we have got to understand is it's not just you and your Bible. It's not just you by yourself. We do this together, because, honestly, I want to say something that might be a little bit controversial, but in the eyes of Jesus, the community is more important than the individual. It's the community that matters the most. And so we're designed to be people connected in this bond of relationship and orient- orientation to Jesus, following him together, but we do it we do it as a new family. That's the first thing. The second is this. To follow Jesus means to be in community, you already learned that, but it means to be in community that are different than you, with people that are different than you. Now, I want to read a passage of scripture, and this is really where I want to land, so Jesus is inviting people, beginning in Matthew chapter 4, come and follow me, come and follow me, come and follow me. And they all do. And, then for, and some don't. But then for the very first, the very first time we read the names of the 12 people he hand-selected is in Matthew chapter 10. And I want to read it for us this morning. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, four quick verses. It reads like this. He is Jesus. He called his 12 disciples. And he gave them authority. Listen to this. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to throw them out, to heal every disease and every sickness. And just so you know who they are, here are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. We read about them in Matthew 4. Philip. Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, another James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Now for the very first time in scripture, these are the names of the 12 people that Jesus hand-selected, called them out, They responded to the call by saying yes, and Jesus is going to spend every hour of his life for the next three years of his life with these people, and we learn their names for the very first time. Now, I want us to focus in on this because I want us to consider, if we could, the kinds of people that are included in this community. The kinds of people that Jesus forms around him, hands selects to be around him. Because here's the thing. We often focus on who these people were. They were like blue-collar, ragtag folks who nobody else would have chosen. But I don't think we often recognize the severe and fundamental distinction of this group, the one thing that sets this group apart from almost every other group that was ever formed in the history of the world to carry on such a mission, which is this. The disciples were very, very, very different from each other. Very different. Now, I don't have time, and y'all don't want to give me enough time to parse out the differences amongst all of the twelve, And I I might want to take that time right now because I had two cold brew coffees this morning and I'm a little hyped up on on caffeine, but I'm not going to do it. So this is what I'll do. I'll follow the scripture's lead because the Bible highlights by name two differences as being the most different of the others. In fact, two people in this passage of scripture are given a description a moniker, whereas nobody else is. Matthew, who's described as a tax collector, and Simon, who's described as a zealot. Now, a little history here, a little history. Pretend I'm like Professor Actual Factual here or something, a little history. A zealot, you need to know this, a zealot in Jesus' day was someone who was a part of an extreme right-wing branch of Israeli nationalists. And they so hated living in their own land but being ruled by an enemy invading force government called the Romans that these zealots had made a decision. The only way we can drive out the Romans who are governing us in our own land is to commit guerrilla-like terrorist activity on unsuspecting roman soldiers that will drive them out they'll abandon it and we'll be able to be free so historical records indicate that these zealots were actually known as Sicarii, or translated that's dagger men and so here's what they would do in their clothes they would walk through the streets and they would conceal carry daggers on their person and when roman soldiers or when governmental roman governmental officials were not looking and were unsuspecting they would take their dagger out they would stab them and try to kill them in an effort to do this often enough that the romans would say enough we're getting out of here because they wanted to be free and they wanted those people gone and the only way they knew how to do it was to act like a terrorist that's simon jesus chose him handpicked him to be a part of his disciples. He's a zealot. All right, that's bad enough. And Jesus probably should have stopped there. But the scripture says he didn't just choose Simon the zealot, he chose Matthew. And Matthew was a tax collector. Now here's what that means. Nobody likes the tax collectors today. So y'all are sympathetic to that already. But it was way worse in Jesus' day. Here, Here is why. Tax collectors were Israelites by birth, but they were employed by the Roman government. And so here's what they would do. They would go to their brothers and sisters who were Israelis, and they would say, Herod needs to collect his taxes, and I am the tax collector who's working for Herod even though I'm an Israeli, and you need to pay me. And you need to pay me. They were literally on Rome's payroll and they benefited from Roman oppression at the expense of their Israeli brothers and sisters. That's Matthew. So, in this newfound community of people that Jesus hand selected to accomplish his mission in the world, here's who he chose. He chose Simon, who wants to kill the Romans and Matthew, whose paycheck is signed by the Romans. One works against the government. One works for it. One is a violent patriot. The other is a sellout and a snitch. Now use your imagination. Can you imagine what, like, morning coffee was like? Good morning, traitor. (laughs) Hello, terrorist. I mean, let's just say... I want, I want to help us understand this. this morning. Let's just say that I'm like some sort of famous rabbi and I'm going to try to save the world. And so I, I'm going to hand-select 12 up-and-coming leaders that I really believe in and they're going to come and live with me for three years and I'm going to invest everything I've got into this new community and I'm banking on this community of people to carry out my mission to save the world. And so I think to myself, who should I? Who should I call first? And so, like, let's say that the, the first person I think to call is, I'll give Steve Bannon a call. Really knows how to get the word out. Just, every, like, garners a lot of attention. Makes a lot of points. Sharp. Edgy. I'll call him. Then I think to myself, well, who should I call next? I'll call AOC. I'll call AOC, Alexandria, Cortez. Like, let's get them together that'll work. And as cheesy as all of that is, multiply it by at least tenfold, and you're getting close to the level of hostility, tension, and bitterness that existed in this new community between a tax collector and a zealot. Now, the outside observers, to people who weren't in this community, this must have looked like madness. Two men who should have been mortal enemies traveling together, eating together, learning from this great teacher together. And it would have been so much easier for Jesus to to, to create two groups. Tax collectors for Jesus and zealots for Jesus. But Jesus doesn't opt for easy. He opts for miraculous. He takes sworn enemies and he says to both of them, come on, come follow me. Matthew the tax collector, Simon the zealot, they couldn't have been more different. And I would imagine that it would have been easier for everyone if the disciples looked alike and thought alike, if they were the same, but they weren't. Because the second thing you need to know is, to be a follower of Jesus means... You are in a community of people who are different than you. You have to be in a community of people that are different than you. If you're ever a part of a community of people and they're just like you, they think like you, they vote like you, they spend their money like you, they believe like you, their skin looks like you. If you're ever a part of a community of people that are just like you, I'm not sure that we can say That that is a community that is actively trying to follow Jesus because a community that is actively trying to follow Jesus necessitates that those people will be fundamentally different than you. Now listen, let's be honest. It is no secret that today in, in our country, in our nation, we are, quote, divided. I keep hearing all the time about how we are divided and we've never been more different than each other. And maybe that's true. Listen, I'm not like some sort of political expert. I don't know the sociological landscape of our country, but I keep hearing about the urban elites and the forgotten people of the flyover states. I hear about all that all the time. Red states and blue states. Whatever. Listen, all of that may very well be true, but none of that should be true with the church. None of that. All of that can be true for our country. That is fine. But none of that should be true for the church. If we begin to separate ourselves along sociological or ideological or even political beliefs, we have failed to be a community of Jesus followers. Why? Because what Jesus does is he takes Matthew, the tax collector, who's on the far left, And he takes Simon the Zealot, who's on the far right, and he puts them together in a community and he says there's going to be something fundamentally more important to you than your differences. What's going to be most important to you is your mission. And anytime we start to look at ourselves and we think, you know what? We're all the same. I I don't know how well we're doing to follow the way of Jesus in this world. Just Just like as as maybe a a wake-up or a a help you understand, did you know that even in this room right now, there are people who love Jesus with their whole heart, and they disagree with every single one of your political beliefs? Did you know that? Did you know that in this room right now, there are people who love Jesus, jesus with their whole heart and are fully committed to serving him but they they disagree with your stance on on immigration or your stance on health care or that you all don't see eye to eye on those things so what are we going to do with that are we going to say of that 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 means that we are not able together to become you know what we should say What we should say is, yeah, it's been like that from the very beginning. And what it means to be a follower of Jesus is not that I convince that other person that they're wrong. But what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that I recognize we're both serving Jesus together. There's something more important than all of that. Which leads me to the third thing that you need to know. So the first thing is this. To be a follower of Jesus means you have to be in community. The second thing is, to be a follower of Jesus means you're going to be in community with people who are different than you. And the third thing is this. It's the community and the quality of the community that makes the message of Jesus credible. It's the community that makes the message credible. Think about it. How would it have gone for Jesus, whose mission was to save the whole world if Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot couldn't drop their differences to focus on the mission, and instead, one of them said, I'm out. I'm out. I can't do it with this person. This person's wrong. They're a sinner. You know what? This person, I'm not even sure they're going to make it to heaven. They're so wrong. How would it have gone if Jesus' new community rolls into a town and their mission is to save and to rescue the whole world? But this community has this infighting thing that all of the rest of the people in the town can see. And they hear at the town diner Matthew talking about Simon and Simon talking about Matthew and saying stuff about each other like, Oh man, you really don't even know that guy that guy's a bad, bad guy. How how would it have gone if the quality of that community was contrary to the message of Jesus? Because what is it that Jesus came to do? He came to reconcile, to restore, to rescue And if Jesus is out there preaching that message and performing the miracles, but the community that surrounds Jesus doesn't verify the legitimacy of the message, people back then are no different than people today. They would have said of Jesus, that's a fraud. Because if that was true, then the people that he surrounded himself with would be fundamentally different than the way that they're acting right now. I mean, how would it have gone if Matthew presses charges against Simon because Simon took his dagger out and tried to do something about this traitor that he despised. All of a sudden, the legitimacy, the credibility of the message crumbles. Church, to be a follower of Jesus means you can't do this alone. You were never designed to do it alone. It means you're going to be in relationship and in community with people who are different than you. So what are you going to do about it? Are you going to use that as an opportunity to learn how to love someone? Are you going to use that as an opportunity to diminish the credibility of the message? And so can I ask, if I could, today some pointed questions? I want you to think about your relationships. And I'm not talking about your Facebook friendships. I'm not talking about people that you know through social media. I'm talking about people that if you called them, they would answer the phone. People that if you invited them out to coffee, they would come. And I want you to think about that. Are there people in your life who are a generation or two younger than you? Are there people in your life, not your children or your grandchildren, people. Are there people in your life who are a generation or two older than you? Are there people in your life who identify on the political spectrum a different way than you? Are there people in their life whose ethnicity and nationality is different than your own? Are there people in your life who are differently abled than you are? Are there people in your life whose orientation might be different than yours? If there are not, if there are not, pay attention. Because the more that we surround ourselves with people who are just like us, the further we get away from the kind of community that Jesus set up from the very beginning. You know what's really interesting? When you read the account, and we don't know a whole lot about Simon the Zealot. We don't know a whole lot about Matthew the text-coker. We know a little bit more. But nowhere in either of the four Gospels does Jesus say to Simon, Hey, you're wrong. Nowhere does Jesus say to Matthew, hey, you're wrong. You know what he does? He says the same thing to each of them. Come on. Come and follow me. We'll work all of that out as we're we're going. Come on. Come and follow me. And I think that he'd say the same thing to all of us in this room this morning as well. Wherever we find ourselves, whether we're here or here or here or here, wherever, come on. Come and follow me. Don't pay attention. You're different, but you should never be divided. Don't pay attention to that. I mean, don't let differences become a division. Come on. Come come and follow me. This is what it means to follow Jesus together. It means that we're in this as a community. It means that you're in it with a community of people who are different than you. And it means that the quality of the community makes the message credible. We have a great, brilliant opportunity to to be a witness to the world. Where else in Tippecanoe County, where else in our world, do people from different persuasions on different issues get together and say our differences are not what's most important. What's most important is that Jesus is Lord, and we're going to do this thing together. That is our witness to the world.